welcome to the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centergene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and April is Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month, with today's episode titled Inside Rare Diseases, What's Next for Parkinson's Disease? Now, as you already may know, uh, PD is a brain disorder that can cause uncontrollable movements in the patient with symptoms often degenerating over time. And while Parkinson's is not necessarily a death sentence, it is generally considered to be a terminal illness. Um, now, before I continue, I will just mention that personally, I've really been looking forward to being able to do this month's episode. Um, Parkinson's disease is a topic that's very close to my heart. Uh, like many others, during the pandemic, I lost a very dear family member to me to Parkinson's, um, and I'd watched her very difficult decline over that decade. So while I wasn't able to help her, I'm very passionate that perhaps the future can hold some answers for those looking for hope as well. And the more knowledge and awareness we can spread here and everywhere we can, I think, the better. So, there are a few different types of Parkinson's, and this has become increasingly visible in the public eye with well-known patients, including Muhammad Ali, George H.W. Bush, Billy Connolly, Neil Diamond, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Ozzy Osbourne, Pope John Paul II, and, of course, Michael J. Fox. Now, I say of course because Michael J. Fox famously founded the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, who also actually announced a research milestone for Parkinson's on April 12th of this year, but we'll touch on that news later. Now, you may be asking, with such a prevalent disease, how can this be considered rare? Why are we talking about this here today? And, and that's a great question, because of course, it isn't. However, the genetic form of Parkinson's disease, the hereditary form, is. Now, as always, you know, I like to find out more, and I think it's best to ask the experts. And we've got two very special guests here today to help answer our questions. You'll remember Professor Peter Bauer, MD, from our previous episodes. Now, Peter serves as the Chief Medical and Genomic Officer at Centergene, and he's authored more than 250 peer-reviewed publications in neurogenetics, oncogenetics, cardiogenetics, and sequencing technology. Welcome back, Peter. It's so great to have you here again. Yeah, thanks, Ken. So welcome, everybody. And I'm glad to be around once again. This is as well a topic that goes very far back in my career, but I hope as well to contribute for the future of what we can do there. So welcome, everybody. Thank you, Peter. At this point, I'm never going to let you leave the studio, so um, get comfortable. <laughs> um, <laughs> our second guest today is amazing, um, the eminent professor of neurology and neurogenetics, Dr. Christine Klein. Now, Christine's pursuit of knowledge has taken her all over the world, including Germany, the UK, Sweden, France, Belarus, the US, Canada, Australia. She completed her neurology training at Lübeck University in 2004. She was appointed the Lichtenberg Professor at the Department of Neurology there in 2005. In 2009, she was appointed as the university's Schilling Professor of Clinical and Molecular Neurogenetics and later the director of its Institute of Neurogenetics in 2013. Christine has also authored over 500 scientific papers with more than 45,000 citations. 
as well as serving as Deputy Editor of Movement Disorders and Science Advances and previously Associate Editor of the Annals of Neurology. She was also Chair of the Congress Scientific Program Committee of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society, was President of the German Neurological Society, and is currently Chair-Elect of the European Section of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society, and Lead of the Monogenic Network of the Global Parkinson's Genetics Program, as well as an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences, Leopoldina. Also, very pleased to mention that we've been privileged enough to have Christine help us out and advise us here at Centergene from time to time as an expert consultant of our work on rare and neurodegenerative diseases. So, Christine, with your experience, an enormous welcome to you. It's amazing having somebody of your deep knowledge join us. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so very much, Ben, for your really kind introduction. And I think, you know, I'm a little bit, well, almost embarrassed, but I think it also shows that I have been around for a while um, in this <laughs> topic and in this area. And I'm very grateful for everything. And everything you just mentioned, every single, you know, step has only been possible within the fantastic team of collaborators, of colleagues, of friends, of experts, and a lot of people that know things better than I do. And so I'm really grateful and I'm very happy to be here today. And I would like to welcome everyone who is listening to the podcast and looking forward to discussing all these exciting discoveries and next steps that hopefully will come and will benefit our patients with Parkinson's disease. Thank you, Christine. And, and well said. I think, you know, one of the themes that we're always talking about here is collaboration and sharing knowledge. And you're right. There's no one person who's able to kind of address these problems. It takes a huge amount of expertise and, and shout out to everybody who contributed to the research as well, of course. So look, let's start from the beginning today. I mean, let's define the topic we're talking about. Christine, you're our resident specialist. Let's start from basics. How many different types of Parkinson's disease have we seen? Are we talking about today? This is a wonderful question. I thank you for that because the answer you may be a bit surprised to hear is I think every person, and we're now switching more and more to the term person with Parkinson's disease because patient always has this connotation of being a bit, you know, maybe not so active or, you know, just, mm -hmm. you know, and so this is, I think, this is important also, you know, to be aware of these, um, that of course, all we're doing is only possible together, again, with those that are affected with Parkinson's disease. So that is one part. But now the answer to your question, I think every single person with Parkinson's disease has their own Parkinson's. And that is actually something we wrote in a recent uh, review for The Lancet, my colleague, Bas Bloom, who kindly invited me to co-author this with him. And I, we really hypothesized that this is the case. And indeed, every patient has, you know, a different course of the disease, different age of onset, different response to treatment, um, different psychological factors involved, a different exposure, everything different. So I think this kind of splitting type of view versus a lumping type of view could be helpful. And however, of course, we cannot deal because, as you know, there are probably an estimated now 7 million or so of Parkinson's disease patients. So it will be very difficult to say, OK, there are 7 million different types, but we can definitely broadly distinguish between typical Parkinson's, clinically typical Parkinson's disease, which is indeed these days no longer a life-threatening disorder, but in fact, the life expectancy is not reduced if people are well treated. And so among those, about 15%, as recently found out, and I'm sure Peter will talk more about this, have a strong genetic contribution or even a genetic cause of those patients. And then there's this other group, they account probably for about 10 to 15% of all of the patients with a Parkinson's 
autoimmune syndrome, they have what we call atypical forms of Parkinson's. And those tend to have, unfortunately, a much more severe course and also don't respond quite as well to treatment. And in the initial phases of the disease, it's very hard or can be hard to distinguish between these two types. Wow. So it's, I, I don't quite know how to respond because that's far, far deeper than I could have ever guessed, to be honest, Christine. I mean, to have such variation between them is remarkable. Peter, do you have any comments about the genetic kind of line of yeah, Parkinson's that we Yeah, sure. About? And thanks. In Christine as well, I think it was introduced. We collaborate since decades. And part of what <laughs> I will <laughs> refer now to is the ROPAT study, which was the Rostock Parkinson study, which we initiated four years ago. And meanwhile, have insights into a global cohort with 10,000 of patients that have the symptoms, but have very different, as Christine said, phenotypes. And as well, when looking into that with a genetic tool, which we call panel sequencing or exomer genome sequencing, we realize that for one out of seven, so 15% roughly, we will find a very uh, renowned, already established genetic risk factor that is, I would say, among the drivers of their problems. It's maybe not the only factor, but the best known uh, well-characterized factor. And maybe taking up this perspective of Christine saying, now we have, for example, a fraction of Parkinson patients that have genetic variants in LARC2, one of these genes, or in GBA, another important one. We see that it's not only the gene, it's as well the variant itself that makes differences. In GBA, we have hundreds of variants that can contribute to Parkinson risk and sooner or later to symptoms. Four of them are pretty frequent, but the others are rare or ultra rare. And of course, you can lump them together and say this is all GBA Parkinson, which we do now, and it helped a lot, but doesn't preclude us from looking as well into these smaller groups again with a lens and try to magnify what we see as commonalities and differences and just really be sure that we do not disregard the uniqueness of every patient, but as well try to help them with some more general approaches going further in diagnostic research and as well in therapeutic research to ultimately, and I think that's the big challenge, but as well the big hope to give them tailored not only diagnostic answers, but as well therapeutic offers. And I think, Christine, that's the ball back into your field to maybe comment as well how you see that. Yes, Peter, thank you. Um, yeah, this is a great segue. So I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, it's so exciting for us. I've been working in the field of Parkinson's really for about maybe 25 years, and I've been always very cautious, and I'm, I still am you know, not to get expectations raised too high and then later cause disappointment or anything. But I think we've never been this close really to potentially gene targeted therapies. And let me just give you an example. We're conducting here a lot of family studies and sometimes, and you mentioned already, Peter, the LERC2 gene. So pathogenic variants in the LERC2 gene are the most common, what we think is a monogenic cause really of Parkinson's disease, although not everyone with such a variant will eventually develop the disease. But this is still one of the most best established genes. And very often, and you mentioned this as well, Peter, there could be different variants in this gene, right? There can be very many different ones. And often, and that's something that you deal with on a daily basis, sometimes it's hard to tell whether a variant, especially when it wasn't described before, is something that just happens and it is benign and it's just a variation really, or whether it does actually contribute or cause disease. And let me give you an example of actually two families we've been looking after recently. And in both cases, there were variants found and it wasn't in LERC2 and it 
it wasn't 100% clear what these variants would do. And so in both cases, we got back the result as a VUS, so-called VUS variant of uncertain significance. And then, of course, that's always a bit difficult because you don't really know what to make of it and you don't really know how to discuss this best with the patients and the families, although they really also understand. It's just a matter of being honest. But to them, they understand that we don't know everything yet. And this is why we have to work together to better understand. But now there is actually an essay uh, that colleagues in Scotland perform, um, Dario Alessi and Esther Samler in their group, that can actually determine really, really well whether the variant changes the protein's function in a bad way. So in other words, it can distinguish between these variants that, you know, that don't matter, they are just there as a variation, normal variation, or those that actually do harm. And so what we did, we worked with them together and they established that both of these variants were clearly, clearly pathogenic. And so we knew, and so we could, you know, be much more specific in our counseling to the family because we were now quite convinced that we had found the cause. And not only that, there is, as you may know, now a clinical trial, the Lighthouse trial going on, which actually enrolls patients with LARC2 mutations or pathogenic variants, where a LARC2 inhibitor, so in other words, a drug that acts against this specific, too much of this protein or too much of this protein's function. And so this is how we really now, from the finding of a variant, a genetic test that we didn't know what it does, to really prioritizing patients and family members for clinical trials can be done, in this case, in less than a year. And I think this is really a huge difference. Whether or not, and that's the last thing I'll say, whether or not this treatment will work remains to be seen, of course, but I sincerely hope that it will. It certainly seems at least, you know, there's a roadmap. It seems like a remarkable breakthrough is not only about how we're looking at it, but also how we might be able to treat it, the fact that they're able to identify those variants. I want to expand a little bit, if I may, Christine, but also go back a little. So in terms of the treatments, you just mentioned talking about the families as well. The question I've got is we're calling Parkinson's disease as this massive group of people, but of course, as you've mentioned, they're all very individual as well and mm-hmm. could be considered rare. Does the treatment differ between a hereditary Parkinson's person or person with Parkinson's disease and a, and a non-hereditary or non-genetic person who has a Parkinson's? Is it the same pathway? Yeah, again, a, a wonderful question. Thank you for that. I, I think and it's a little bit, you know, perhaps a little bit of a paradox uh, situation because it's um, you can answer this question with yes and with no. Um, so let of me... Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so let me start by, you know, with a no answer. You could say and you could argue that there is no difference. And that in a way is true because we don't have at this stage any gene-specific treatments available that we could give to the patient. So in other words, if you have what I just portrayed, if you have the LARC2 mutation, then you'll get the LARC2 inhibitor. We're not there yet. But, and therefore, all of the patients, including all of the genetic uh, ones um, that that were mentioned by us, uh, will receive very similar, if not identical treatment to those that do not carry pathogenic variants in any of these genes. So this would be, you know, the no, there is no difference. On the other hand, you can say, yes, there is a difference. And what is the difference? So the difference is, first of all, um, and again, we would have to go into a bit more detail, but just to give you an example, some of the genetic forms have a much earlier age of onset, for example. So pathogenic variants in Parkin would cause an age of onset in the early 30s, typically. So in such a case, obviously, you're dealing with people that are, you know, that are just starting their families, that are, you know, just starting their careers or in the midst of their careers. And so so already it becomes very clear that you want to tailor your, uh, your therapy. For example, you may be, you know, quality of life will be very important. And can you keep them, you know, active in their job? So you will consider, even with the drugs that we use for everyone, you may consider slightly different paths. And then um, the other thing is that, for example, some respond better to certain, for example, deep brain stimulation than other patients. Or um, 
or also, you know, that some might develop dyskinesias more than others. So there is a few important clinical considerations that you will take into account. And so there, then the answer would be yes. And perhaps there is a difference. And then perhaps the most important part, I think, is because especially in the young patients, you may, but even the older ones, you will follow them. And that's also really beautiful to be able to do this, to, you know, be with them for the course of the years and their condition and to try and help and understand and make it better. So, so this is important because it you will counsel them differently. Um, and there may be questions of family planning, you know, insurance issues. So that there could be all sorts of different things. So I think the answer is a no and a yes, or a yes and a no. No, no, well put <laughs> maybe, and very clear. Go on. Maybe Ben there, uh, I would even add a not yet. <laughs> and I, I think that that's as well, I think, an, an essential gain we had in the last two decades with the genetic forms of Parkinson's because uh, let's say in the past it was described and we know how the disease evolves uh, which signs and symptoms can be seen as well imaging and all these detailed diagnostic tools that have been developed and provide value in the evaluation of patients but I think it was crucial with the acknowledgement of genetic forms that we see kind of a molecular pathway uh, mm -hmm. on our desk that we have to understand because we can already today quantify the contribution of the pathway. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know how this genetic variant or this gene really drives the pathophysiology, but at least we know that we can find there something and can focus. And this has been done uh, massively in the last 10, 15 years. And as a readout, Christine, you mentioned already Lighthouse study. Of course, someone thought LARC2 dysfunction can be a target to reduce the risk to have disease progression or maybe even uh, stop someone from showing signs of Parkinson at all. So that's the hope that was specially triggered through the genetic forms, which are only 15%. But we think that the mechanisms, or sometimes we hope, we have some evidence, but of course not total evidence, that mechanisms that are uh, established through genetic forms might as well contribute to the non-genetic forms and might then uh, expand our repertoire of molecular therapy in the future. And, and you learned with the pandemic that as well the, the tools we can now engage in treatment have grown uh, with, with a push from another side. But uh, I'm very optimistic that soon these questions can be addressed and then as well specific, very efficient treatment, pathway treatment can be offered. Hope that was not wrong from your perspective, Christine, but I think that's no, my no. main take there. Yeah. I totally agree. And it's beautiful how you all, you know, portrayed it. I, I totally agree. And in fact, I would even venture to say, and this is coming back to Ben's earlier question, I'm, I would even venture to say, as we're starting to understand the individual contributions of the different pathways, for example, mitochondrial dysfunction. So this is dysfunction of our powerhouses of the cell that we know occurs in Parkinson's or, uh, you know, too much of the LARC2 protein function or GBA1 not working properly. So I think that could be in the end, hopefully we'll have, we'll develop 
you know, targeted therapies for all of these. And I could envision that we'll have one day really good biomarkers that will really tell us, okay, this person has a problem with mitochondria and with this in particular. And this is how we can then tailor maybe the therapy as we do now with the symptomatic therapies, but then maybe also with the uh, with the actual, you know, targeted therapies towards the origin of the disease and the pathways that I could envision that there could also be a very, very personalized medicine coming or might be on the horizon for Parkinson's. This will take a few years, though, I should say, until we can hope that this will be, you know, our daily practice. It takes time. But look, yeah. I mean, that, that, that very neatly, you know, fits into one of the big questions I wanted to ask today. Look, I mentioned in my intro that, of course, the Michael J. Fox Foundation announced that a study on, I think, April 12th of this year had discovered a biomarker for Parkinson's and had even indicated in their press release it may lead to a future halt of disease progression. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of studies going on around the world, but I'm really curious to hear um, your guys' thoughts on what this means for the for the coming years. Right. P- Peter, would you like me to start or would you? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And very, you know, very, very important study. Thanks for mentioning it. It's so we're talking about a biomarker, um, which is based on alpha synuclein. So alpha synuclein is really the most about the most important protein that is part of the little, you know, inclusion bodies that we find when somebody with Parkinson's disease dies and comes to autopsy. So then we see these inclusions, they're called Lewy bodies, and they contain mostly alpha synuclein. And alpha synuclein is then misfolded, the protein is misfolded. And this process of misfolding and aggregation can now be monitored in living people um, in the CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid of these people. And the exciting uh, part of the very, very exciting news from this paper is that it was also found in people that have not yet, so that are prodromal, so that have not yet developed full-blown Parkinson's, but are rather, rather in the prodromal phase. And not only that, but they also looked in two different genetic forms, GBA1 and LORC2 associated disease, and also there found this uh, to be present. And excitingly, in the LORC2 group, not everyone had it. And this is again in line with what we know from the postmortem findings. So this is very, very exciting. I should say, though, that it's not the first, well, it's the biggest and largest and beautiful study, but this has been shown with another method called RT-Quick um, also before, actually already two years ago. For example, Iran's and other colleagues have shown this. So this is something that has been around. And I'm just saying this also, not just to credit also the other people, but also to say that really this seems to work. So I think that's great. And let me just make one more remark in this respect, mm-hmm. which is maybe even more important because it could become then more feasible. Uh, there has been a beautiful paper by Daniela Berg's group in August last year that showed that it can even be done in plasma or serum. And this, of course, is a lot more accessible than cerebrospinal fluid. So I think we're definitely moving in this direction. How much this, you know, how much of a role this will play in genetic forms, how early we can define and identify patients, and is it a marker maybe not only of state but also of trait and all these things that will remain, we'll have to determine in the future. But it's a really enormously promising essay for sure. Amazing. Ada, do you have any yeah. other thoughts? Uh, maybe two comments just to explain what Christine mentioned, and, and maybe it's not easy. The, the biomarker can be used to diagnose individuals. That would be the state biomarker, as she mentioned. Or it could even help us to see the severity of disease. So a high biomarker, for example, indicating severe disease or rapid progression, which which would be uh, the monitoring aspect. And both are needed. Treatment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To treatment responses potentially. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And, and of course, 
I see the same. It's a breakthrough to say we have something that independently identifies the Parkinson disease in an analysis of be it CSF or blood. Blood, of course, would be ideal. But on top, of course, I would make a comment on going back to the genetic forms. You would say, well, then let's do genetics at every, let's say, at least adult early. Then he knows what he can prevent or has to account for in the future. As of today, it's not so easy and maybe it's good that it's not so easy because uh, the genetics are contributing to the risk, but it's not fate that we can read out of the genes, which means if you have these markers and variants, there is at the moment, as far as we know, a rather high probability that you will not develop Parkinson, although you have the risk. So there's many either protective factors or risk profiles that are much more complex. And only in few and a small subset, we assume something between 10 and 20%. Usually for some genes, it's a little bit higher, but very often it's in that range, you will develop symptoms sooner or later. And, and therefore, whenever you have been confronted with the observation of one of these risk variants in those genes we mentioned, it's not that you have to be afraid of being on a path to Parkinson. Usually, you can have hope. And studying as well why people develop and manifest with symptoms is as well a big opportunity for us to, to be more precise in finding mechanisms that as well protect from getting neurodegeneration and symptoms of Parkinson's. So the, the big picture is a mixed one as always in life, but there, there is an opportunity which we can use to, to help patients. But as well, there's much more to be learned around why so many stay healthy pretty long, which is amazing. <laughs> and still, I think the good side of the coin, just to mention that. Yeah, well put, Peter. I think I think often, you know, perhaps we aren't studying the survivors as, as much as we're, we're studying the terrible causes, but yeah, very good point. I just I also just wanted to ask a very quick question. It sounds very invasive, this biomarker. With the, was it the spinal fluid? Is it is as invasive as it sounds for people? Uh, you know, yes and no. Of course, you know, it's uh, it's more than just, you know, a simple blood draw, but it's not, it's first of all, it's something that's done routinely in neurology for many conditions every day. Hundreds are being done really, uh, even here at our hospital per day. So, um, or in Lübeck, I should say, perhaps. So this is a real routine procedure and it is safe. And it is also, um, you know, with the new equipment, new needles, and, you know, there is, there's very, very good chances that you can even, you know, get away without, um, you know, much of a headache or any other or any other side effects. So it's definitely something that I would recommend because it is important for us because it's the best window into the brain that we have. And we have a lot of uh, Parkinson's patients here now at, uh, you know, Lübeck, for example, that agreed to, you know, donating um, a CSF sample. And we're very grateful to this because I think there's a lot to be learned and none of them so far had a problem. So so I think it's, it's definitely something to recommend and an important tool. Yeah. I, I think I can hear people sighing relief of our <laughs> listeners going, okay, good, thank you. However, of course, a simple blood test would always be preferred, and yeah. especially if you would like to do monitoring. Mm. Of course, you wouldn't have to balance kind of the 
the potential, let's say, headache or what could happen with the benefit of having an additional marker value. And therefore, everybody's striving to learn from kind of samples close to the brain, which is the CSF, but then try with reasoned and high sensitive technology, maybe as well, to find enough traces of this marker or linked markers in plasma, in blood, just to make it a convenient and mm -hmm. widespread test. And, and so that's a little bit the approach we are taking to try to translate this knowledge as well into a very broad offer. So, okay, let's jump ahead a little bit, 5, 10, 15, 20 years up to you. Based on both of your deep expertise and what you know of the current climate in terms of drug development and studies going on and the direction that we're going, what are your personal predictions for the future for people with Parkinson's disease? What do you think is the pathway of what's next or what the end result here for diagnosis and treatment? To both professors, who, whoever wants to start. I think I start to give you the last word, Christine, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would say Parkinson will not go away. That's clear. And why? Because because we will still be a population that, that uh, we can age beyond the average age of this decade in the next 10, 50 years. And therefore, of course, the brain will not outlast for centuries. That's a given. And part of neurogeneration is just aging, which means uh, it's a natural process. <laughs> and in these patients, it's a little bit faster than it should be and more specifically uh, hitting neurons that we need to have smooth movements. On the other side, with everything we know already right now, with the differentiation of therapies and a much closer look for the individual, like Christine put beautifully, I think we will we'll be able to care about everybody with an individual treatment and maybe exercise plan that helps him to keep his competence in daily life and as well support him with drugs and therapies that make the best out of a disease that is I think human and will will stay with us. Well put. Thank you. Good, Christine? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, Peter, I have to agree with everything you said, and there's not much left, I think, or not much else. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's absolutely true. So I think, and of course, it's always difficult to, you know, predict things, especially when it comes to the future. But um, it's, uh, I, so let me be optimistic today, but maybe, and, and trying not to be unrealistic, because that's important. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm thinking there are so many different different trials and ideas and you know really advanced research findings in the field of genetic Parkinson's that I'm thinking and the trials are happening as we said and in fact Peter what you just said before also of course very true so the hope is that for example a treatment a LARC2 inhibitor would not just work for patients with a LARC2 mutation but maybe also for those that don't have one but it's the same pathway that could be involved and in fact the company is doing exactly this they are running a parallel a trial also in patients without such mutations whether or not this work I don't know but I think in I would you know carefully venture to predict that over the next five to ten years we may have something that works at least in 
some form of genetic Parkinson's because it's easier to tackle because we just understand it better. Then the second, and this is really my outlook and whether or not this will work and how quickly I cannot predict. But I think genetics, again, offers a very unique and enormous opportunity because here we can identify who is at risk or who will sometimes even with very high penetrance. In other words, if you do have an alpha-snuclein triplication, you will develop the disease if you have a normal lifespan. So in these scenarios, we have this really unprecedented opportunity to try and identify these people at the much earlier, ideally the pre-manifest stages. Because of course, when Parkinson's, you know, when you see it, even the first, you know, little, only little signs, already 60, 70% of the cells have died. So really you want to be earlier. And genetics, I think here is an amazing opportunity for us to exploit more. And if these treatments work that we were just discussing, then, and the biomarkers work that we were also discussing, then I could see, you know, a little bit further down the road though, I could see potentially trials happening also in people with, for example, certain, you know, very predisposing mutations um, to see whether they might benefit and maybe whether or not the disease could perhaps be prevented from manifesting altogether. Mm, you know, very, very interesting. And I, I will hold you to it, Christine. In five or 10 years, I'm going to call you up and say, that didn't happen. And I'll be very... No, 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 no. I didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't put a price tag on that. I said in five to 10 years, we'll have something against the genetic form. But the, the other, the, that is probably going to take a little bit longer. But I'm hoping that we can still all contribute to this and, and see it happen. I'm just saying expect the phone call. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Looking but, forward look, to that, Ben. Well, look, any opportunity. I look, I do always... Um, listeners of previous episodes will know this. I always want to leave our listeners with something tangible, a takeaway that they can, you know, potentially apply today. So my final question before we wrap it up, we're short on time. Thank you both for, for your time today. But um, if you had one thing that you that you wanted, whether a physician or a person Parkinson's looking for answers or even a medical student, well, what's the one thing that you'd want them to know to be able to take away from today that, that you think would be beneficial to them? Christine? Um yeah, but this is really, the answer here is really true for pretty much all of medicine and maybe even other things in life. We, we need to, we just need to follow this path. We need to understand. We need to research. We need to try. We need not to, you know, be disappointed when things fail, but, you know, get up again and try again. Uh, we need to be optimistic. We need to have everybody on board. That is all the people you just mentioned. That is in particular the per persons with Parkinson's disease. That is our healthcare systems. This is all, you know, all the funders of our research. So this is a big undertaking. And we'll have to, you know, view all of this as a, as a whole. And only this way and only together we'll be able to achieve something for the better in the future. And that is, I think, and everybody can be part of this. I think this is also something I would like to tell everyone, you know, the medical student, the patient, the funders, everyone. Everyone has an, also a little bit of an obligation because we can make a change. I'll put Peter. Yeah, I think for me, it's always takeaway there's not no determinist in what we are doing. It's really having some observations and then immediately as well options and opportunities. Of course, some risks and as well some pressure, be it uh, here for the genetic forms of Parkinson's. But th there's a lot of hope. And I think if, if we just keep it open and don't think something is bad and will stay bad, but uh, has this another aspect that you can turn into something good, think that that's something I strive for and I would like to share as well with everybody that is in touch with me. <laughs> well, you've both made me feel a thousand times better about all of it. So thank you. And we're at the end of the time, but look, your guys' insights, expertise, 
answers, thoughts, views on the future. I mean, it's so valuable and things that we get so rarely in one place. So, so Kristen and Peter, thank you, producers. I can't thank you enough. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks, everyone. And with that, we're going to conclude this month's episode of the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centergene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and today we were going inside rare diseases by asking what's next for Parkinson's disease. Join us next month for the next episode of our podcast as we continue on our mission for life-changing answers, and I do think we came up with a few ones, a few really good ones today, so thank you guys. We hope that today's episode did help you see inside rare diseases a little clearer today, and if it did, you can help us help to raise awareness by telling a friend or write a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can even share the episode on social media. I hope you join us for our next episode. So until then, thank you for listening.